Leaders, good morning. Leaders, good morning. That's more like it. Welcome to a conversation that is themed leadership in the face of adversity. My name is Nozi Pombandwa. I am a journalist with CNBC Africa, and it's a great pleasure for me to introduce our panelists who are going to be leaning into this conversation, sharing some of their insights, and sharing their own experience of what leading through adversity means for them. Sitting directly close to me is Mama Grasha Marshall. <laughs> And as we all know, she is an African leader of note. She's an African stateswoman. We know that she's an international advocate for women and children's rights. She sits uh, on the, the United Nations uh, Secretary General's uh, SDG Council and uh, works in advocating for the Sustainable Development Goals. Thank you, Mama, for being Thank here you. this morning. It's a Thank you. And of course, sitting uh, next to Mama is Prof. Tulima Donzella. Many of us in the audience and across the continent know that uh, Prof. Madoncella took on the role of South Africa's public protector between 2009 and 2014. And those of us who are also au fait with our history know that she was one of the people who were instrumental in drafting the constitution that led to a democratic South Africa. Prof., thank you very much for being here. And finally, at the end, we have uh, the Honorable Minister of Investment, Trade, and Industry and Botswana, Minister uh, Tenewendo. Uh, we know that, of course, she is the youngest member of Parliament. She's also the youngest woman in the history of Parliament in Botswana and uh, previously worked uh, at uh, Trade and Industry Ministry in Ghana, so a true African. Thank you very much for being here. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, and before we get to our panel discussion, leaders, this is your conversation. We are your guests, and we're leaning into your conversation. And so when I come to you for a facilitated question and answer session, I really want you to lean in. I really want you to ask those incisive questions. The one thing that I will ask of you, though, I'm going to ask you to be short, to be sharp, and to be to the point. I want to get as many of your voices in. And so I will also exercise my moderator superpowers if I, <laughs> if I feel that you're not being short, sharp, and to the point, and I will cut you, right? But let's hope that we don't have to get there. So Mama, let me come to you first. You have served the continent. You have led the continent in uh, different ways. But surely there have been critical moments in your leadership journey where you've had to confront and face adversity. Can you give us an example of one of those experiences? And how did you get through that adversity? Thank you and good morning. I was 29 when I was given the portfolio of education as a cabinet minister, young, inexperienced. I was the only woman in the cabinet and I had to navigate to help our country really to transform the educational system. If you like, it, it was to draft it anew mm. from colonial situation 
to a, an education system which would serve Mozambique for Mozambicans. I was very enthusiastic and I put together a team of uh, much qualified and experienced people than myself, and all of them were older than myself. And I learned to uh, listen, to ask questions, and to learn to ask the right questions and listen, but at the end, aware that the decision are on my shoulders mm. and I'm responsible for whatever we are going to do together. We had uh, the first five years were really great. The country was growing, the education system was growing, we trained teachers and I was full, full of enthusiasm and hope. Then Mozambique is confronted with a war, mm. an internal conflict. Mm. I saw schools which we had built together being destroyed, more depressing. Kids I knew, I had to find them in displaced camps, in refugee camps, actually. Looking at me, gazed, they couldn't almost recognize me. They were so traumatized. Mm. And I said to myself, what do we do now? Yeah. That was really my first bath of facing adversity. Mm. I needed to continue to be Minister of Education yeah. in a situation where the system, the network system was being destroyed. But we were left with the most important elements of the education system. It was teachers mm. and the pupils. So in refugee camps, in displaced camps, in other areas where the, 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 the war had not impacted, yeah. we continued now to revisit how do you build a a system mm. in a conflict situation. Yeah. Why this is important? Because our continent is still confronted with this. Yeah. It's not a new experience of uh, the 70s, the late 70s. Mm. It's still a reality of our continent. As you know, leaders, most of the children who are not in schools today are in conflict countries or in fragile countries. So it's an issue which is real, it's still present in, uh, in our reality today. But this is what shaped me, actually. When they introduced me to say, I'm an advocate for children and women, it's not because I chose to. Yeah. It's because the suffering and the pain of the children and the mothers I had to deal with, they chose me to be their voice. Yeah. And I had no choice, really, to refuse. And I had to become, I mean, the voice of these kids. And more importantly, of education until today. I'm an mm. advocate for education. To be short, this is where I had to, with my colleagues, to redesign from a normal situation mm. to develop education in conflict situations. Mm. And we had to retrain our teachers. We had to create a situation where children could become children again so that they can learn. Mm. And this experience of Mozambique inspired then the Secretary General of UN to ask me then to lead, which is called in UN family, the Marshall Study. Mm. And it was to transport the experience of Mozambique to a yeah. global stage. Not because we had done extremely well, but we was a model which could be perfectioned, it could be then taken to 
other situations mm. and that's how we have to shape the agenda yeah. of the UN today to deal with children in situation of conflict. For the sake of time, I'll stop there. Mama, <laughs> I hear four things. You had to re-listen and ask different questions. So there was a relearning that happened. You spoke about having to re-see teachers and pupils as the resource and the backbone that still re remained. So there was a repurposing of existing resources. You spoke about rebuilding. And what I'm hearing is that it's not just about rebuilding the infrastructure, um, but it's also about rebuilding the people. And finally, what I'm also hearing is about redesigning for the new reality. So how do we go back, take stock of where we are, and say, what do we do moving forward? Mm -hmm. Mama, prof, advocates, I come to you next. In your time as public protector in South Africa, you received international accolades, local accolades for your work. But I would, I would dare also to say you probably received as many enemies at the same time, right? How would you describe your experience of leading in adversity? Well, good morning, leaders. Good morning uh, to you, Nozifo. I would like to believe that my experience was shaped by my earlier experience. I joined the struggle at a very young age. Um, I, I must have been around 16 or so when I started getting involved in, in the struggle after June 16. So young leaders, mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to know how old am I. <laughs> and the reason I joined the struggle was because I loved justice and I wanted to create a more just and equitable world, a world where every human being feels they belong and everyone's potential is freed. And so that was always the running point. When I faced what you define as adversity as a public protector, the anchor of what my team and I did was always what do we love? Can we still achieve what we love? Which was a more just, a more fair world and, and a more um, inclusive world. And everything then hanged on that. Um, we had faith though that the people we're dealing with are going to change because if we didn't have faith that people couldn't change, we wouldn't have proceeded. We also understood that people were doing the best they could, just as we were doing the best we could. And some of the things people were doing was because they didn't understand consequences. A lot of leaders think transactionally. That I need to do this to achieve this now, and they don't realize that if I do this, the consequences will be that. You know, one of the investigations I did, for example, was around a use of resources for one of the senior people in government, enormous resources. But by saying that is okay to do it, you were then sending a message unintentionally that it's okay for all leaders at all levels to use the enormity of resources for themselves at the expense of the people we are supposed to serve. So we had to understand that, that some of it is unintentional. So we had to, personally, I had to forgive people because I just understood that if I carried it through, I would not be able to, um, to move forward. But lastly, for me, as I indicated, we focused on what we loved. We had faith that people would, uh, would change. We also had faith that we ourselves can carry the task that we're supposed to carry. We also had hope, honestly, 
that the South Africa we wanted was possible. And I kept saying we because I was never a lone crusader. If I had been a lone crusader, I would not have succeeded. But that wisdom came later because I'd been involved in the struggle before. I'd been a trade unionist. And as a young trade unionist, I often fought everyone, yeah. including my colleagues. And at the end of the day, you discover that actually you can go fast when you are alone, but if you want to go far, you need to carry your colleagues with you. That definitely deserves a, a round, and of course, uh, you know, that, that, that adage, that African adage that, you know, you go fast if you go alone, but you can go so much further when you go with others. But Prof, I think, you know, what you've said resonates so strongly. You've spoken about reconnecting with purpose, mm -hmm. and you have put, you've centralized justice as the purpose that continue to speak to you and continue to anchor your team. Um, you've, you've spoken about uh, forgiveness, and, and the way I'm going to pivot this is almost say there's a conversation about courage that needs to take place because it takes courage to let go of the things that you feel you have a right to, to, to fight against and, you, and you, have, you have a pain that needs to be acknowledged. But finally, I think we also need to have a conversation as young leaders about how do we transform self-belief so that it is a belief that is embedded in an entire nation, that something different can come from what I am doing. And we're going to explore some of those uh, areas in a moment. But let me go to yourself, Minister Kenuendo. Um, when, when the news broke that you had been appointed uh, the minister, I believe that every single African that was connected to the news wires in that moment, every single young African celebrated your appointment because I think it represented so much more than just an appointment of another minister to another portfolio. So what is your experience then as a young African woman in the political arena? What is your experience of leading through adversity? Uh, thank you very much, Nazipa, and good morning, leaders. Um, you know, it was such an interesting day uh, when I got appointed and uh, we had a lot of, I, had, I received a lot of uh, tweets and messages from across the continent and the world. Uh, but what people didn't see was uh, the moment uh, to my appointment when I was uh, uh, being offered uh, the role of minister and uh, where you know, you have a few minutes to yourself. I actually took a picture very randomly. You have a few moments to yourself where you're asking, um, am I ready for this? Uh, is it the right time for this? Uh, will I be able to deliver uh, on the hopes uh, that, are that will lie on this particular role? And most importantly, it was on the purpose of, uh, of my life. Is this really what I'm meant to, to do? And I had to take myself through uh, the various stages uh, of um, the pivotal moments in my life. And everything in those moments was always about the need to serve. It was always about uh, the need to do better for my country and for the people that I grew up uh, seeing. And uh, just to give you a little background, I uh, am from a very rural part of Botswana. 
from Montopi and uh, you know seeing the way my uh, village is and the area around that is it gave me a sense of purpose to want to work uh, for the people in that area and for the younger generation that come after me to know that it's possible you know the world is our oyster too regardless of where you come from so just to bring it back to to your question um, adversity for me isn't a moment it is this life uh, because we are faced with um, a point where we, we talked about this earlier, where we have to uh, lead a second revolution, if you will, for the continent. And it is all about uh, economic independence. And it, I find it uh, such a defining moment for, for our generation to, to really rise to the challenge and to take our rightful place in history and lead that revolution. And it's very hard when you have to uh, be part of uh, the leadership in this revolution um, especially in times of scarcity. Scarcity of resources, scarcity of young people in decision-making, scarcity of women in decision-making. It's a lot of scarcity. Mm -hmm. And you have to uh, double down and say, even though it's a period of scarcity, your mind shouldn't be that of scarcity. It should be that of abundance, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, how do I reroute all these resources mm -hmm. uh, that are around us to ensure that they deliver the high impact mm -hmm. that I believe is the purpose of my being mm -hmm. in this role? So um, I, um, I find that other than just the scarcity of resources, of people, of young people, of women in decision-making, it's also that it's a... It's the 21st century. Yeah. You're living through everyone looking at you. You feel the eyes, you feel uh, the hopes, and it, you know they're not that detached yeah. from you. So it's adversity in different levels. Adversity in different levels. Uh, and, and of course, I think a number of salient points, one of, I think, is really important and, and should resonate with all the leaders in the room, is this idea that uh, leadership should not be just about myself, but leadership is for my village, it is for my community, it is for my country, it is for my continent, and I think you've positioned that really strongly for us. Um, you speak about a second liberation or a, a, another wave of transformation, and this is the challenge that everybody in the room is faced with. What is your role in bringing about the different types of liberation and transformation that are required in your society. But leaders, don't forget this. The minister, when she heard the news, she checked her Twitter feed, <laughs> and she took a selfie. And I took a selfie. Right? So, so this is the leadership we're talking about, deeply in the fourth industrial revolution. But let me come back, Mama, let me come back from the fourth industrial revolution. If you were now to look at, you know, we know that Africa is not a homogenous continent. We know that we have different markets, we have different realities, but surely there are some common golden threads of what leadership should look like on the continent. The leaders here are all leading in their respective spaces. Are there any individual or maybe even collective lessons that you would say, these are the top three things that I think as you contend with what adversity looks like now, you should not lose this as a leader. What are those three things that for you define leadership irrespective of whether we're talking about the days uh, when Mozambique had to be rebuilt or we're talking about the days like 
2018, where, where 200 young leaders find themselves here. We are Africans. And uh, as Africans, we have a philosophy which defines you <clears throat> as we and not I. Yeah. And I think that is the fundamental identity which any young person who expects to lead has to define himself or herself always as we. What does it mean? It means that whether you are coming from a, a village, you are coming from a slum, you are coming from a public service, you are coming from an academic institution, you are coming from a corporate, you carry, you carry the aspirations of the community you represent. You are never yourself for yourself. You represent that community. So it's extremely important that we keep that fundamental African value of uh, defining ourselves always in terms of who do we belong to. And when you climb, you climb with those people who you represent. That's the first. The second one is... Uh, the minister was was talking about scarcity. Yes. I think, actually, African young leaders have to, to, to as she quite rightly put it, the abundance. Mm. We are not a poor continent. We are not poor countries. Mm. We are really rich and rich and rich with the values which have carried us until where we are today, but with the ability of recreating our own way of being in the community of nations. If you take into account that this continent has been crushed, there was an intention to crush us as colonialists, but we, we emerged strong and that's why we are where we are. And, and there's a second revolution or liberation where we are. I think the second point which I want to raise as next to we is redesign the table. Don't accept the tables which you are working on now because they have not been designed by you. Most of institutions, most of institutions we are living in, whether it's a parliament or the way the government operates, etc., etc. We are imitating the models of what we inherited from colonial system. Yeah. They are not African, I mean, embedded. Yeah. They are not rooted in African values. So be bold. There's no limit at which you can redesign the systems, redesign the institutions, redesign even the value system, which is going to drive those institutions. That's the second thing. And if I can relate it to the past, those who are our ancestors in liberation, actually they had the courage to believe that from colonial to freedom, there's a new world you can build. And they did. In their own way, when they delivered freedom to us, yes, they began the redesigning. But you young people now, 21st century, with the knowledge, experience, and I mean the bright minds you are, 
and the energy and the, and the, and the even I mean the generosity which you have. Yeah. Just believe that it's your time to redesign systems, redesign institution, redesign the agenda of where we have to go. So that is the second element. But you asked me, you asked me about the third. Yes. It's about ethics. It's about ethics. You know, you have to question yourself. How does it happen that we are this, with all this abundance, but we live, we live with it without disturbing our consciousness that we have millions of people who are hungry. We have millions of people who have no food. We have millions of, of people who do not have, I mean, clean water. They have no sanitation. All those things which you know. The, the thing is, you are the generation which has to transform this. Nobody else. Really, it's your responsibility. It is your responsibility. And saying this, then it's the ethics I'm talking about is again going to what I was saying. It's not about yourself. You have to go beyond yourself. You have to go, I mean, to that level where you can say, I carry the dreams and aspirations and even, I mean, the ability of transformation of the people I represent. And because of that, you won't be able to steal from the people. You will not be able to forget. When we say, others are saying, leave no one behind, it means you will never forget where you come from. And you know that you take those people with you. You climb with them. And finally, you will say, this all, it's not about only economic prosperity. It's exactly about social justice. The end, the end goal for us is where we are going to get every single African living in dignity, living in the ability to look into the eyes of each one and say, I am, because you are. And the social justice, social justice is the end. All the things we are doing are tools, are means, are mechanisms which we are using, transforming institutions, as I said. But at the end of the day, it's a social justice. And so you young people, you are not going to be beating women. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I have to be very provocative here. Because I have seen, yeah, I have seen some people who say they are leaders, etc., but they but, are oppressing their yes, yes. partners. Eh? Mm-hmm. And I've seen even young women, professional, I mean, competent, self-confident at work, but at home, yes, mama. <laughs> yes, mama. And they allow. And they, <laughs> and they allow their partners to abuse them. Yeah. If I had the time, I would give him my experience on this. Okay, okay, right. sorry, okay. I'm provoking so, you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you in a second. I promise you, I have only two questions, but I'm opening it up, um, and we're going to. But there are three fundamental questions you've challenged us with. Who do you belong to? As the first question, whose table are you sitting at? As the second question, uh, second question. And what are your ethics? What is your why? Why are you there? And what are you doing? Thank you for those questions.
Now, Prof, I want to come back to you because, again, we're focusing on this idea of adversity. You, you said something very important in your initial response. You spoke about social justice first as the anchor, as the purpose. So the question then becomes, how important is it how you frame your adversity? How important is it how you frame the challenges, how you, how you, how you choose to see the challenges mm -hmm. as a way that gives you then the courage, the capacity, and the tools to actually work through them? Is framing as important as the fight itself? Absolutely. Framing is important. I think we can learn something from uh, one of the leaders of South Africa whose centenary we celebrate, Nelson Mandela, um, who went into prison. And while he was in prison, one of the things that kept him going was the poem, Invictus. Mm. And I would say as a young person, as a young leader, if you can get a copy of the poem, Invictus, get it. The second thing I would say, if you can get a copy of the book, who moved my cheese? Yeah. That would be important. Yeah. All of these, they put you at the center of where you're going. And you frame adversity the way a captain frames the storms at sea. Mm. That the storms are part of the way of life. And you have a destination which is your purpose. Yeah. You're trying to get where you need to go. The storms are going to be there if you howl at the storms, will they stop being storms? Mm. Mm. They're not yeah. gonna stop being storms. In my case, for example, my storms with people calling me spy, mm. and that had nothing to do with the work, with, with, with me being a spy, it had to do with the fact that I was standing in the way of some people wanting to eat. Mm. So I, I could then focus on really dealing with them about being spy, or I could decide I have a journey. The journey with the team is to anchor democracy, to support mm -hmm. democracy, so that it can deliver the end. Umama was talking about a democracy that works for all, where no one is left behind, and everyone is able to make the best of their own lives, and secondly, to be a resource to the rest of humanity. So yes, framing is everything. Framing is everything. The Just linked yes, to that. Uh, it's, it's part of that framing is everything is you always have to ask yourself when things are happening to you, mm. um, am I a victim of this? Mm. Or is this just happening? And I'm certain that for all of us, when we walk through the journey of life, from high school, from primary school, things would have happened to us. And that book that I spoke about, which I gave to my team at the Park Protector South Africa from the very beginning was a book about do you want to react as a victim, mm. which is something you said earlier, Mama, mm. or do you want to respond, which is another thing you said, Minister, uh, do you want to respond as a, as a leader? So the storms are going to come, and, but are you going to look at this as an obstacle that can be used as a building block to mm. the future you have determined? Which is, um, so that's how we framed things. And I think, I think that's absolutely important. So you, the framing is important, but how you position yourself relative to the adversity is important. Am yes. I a victim? Am I a leader? And am I engaging with an opportunity exactly. to change mm, the exactly. current circumstance and exactly. to change the reality? 
Minister, I'm going to come to you with the final question before I, I, I come to the floor. What do you believe are some of the dated concepts and understandings of leadership that we need to let go of, that you have had to maybe even educate people around you, that you have to let go of this because it no longer serves us in the current environment. We're in, you said it yourself, you said 21st century. We are in a, in a space and a time in history where we are seeing new industries developed. We're seeing uh, leadership being redefined. Are there certain traditional understandings or concepts of leadership that you believe are not going to serve us? And as Africans, we might need to learn to let them go if we are really going to be able to lead in the current and in the future. Uh, thank you uh, for that question. I would have uh, put it more with a positive spin because I think there's a lot more we can learn from traditional aspects of leadership. And uh, I think some of these misunderstandings are not uh, part and parcel of the traditional parts of uh, leadership. First, that uh, young people can't lead because I mean, Mama uh, Michelle just said she was 29 when she became a minister. So where does this notion that uh, young people can't lead come from? Where does it come from? First, that's the one that we have to let go of. And we can cite several cases of uh, uh, leaders uh, who could be 100 today who started leading when they were in their 20s. Yes. And the people who similarly uh, are peddling this uh, misconception mm -hmm. that young people can't lead started leading when yeah, they, were they were young, young. Absolutely. right? So we can cite so many of them. Even yeah. my own first president was in his late 30s. Uh, you know, uh, Lumumba was in his 20s, uh, um, passed away 29. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah, early 40s. Every one of them was in that early stages, early years when they started to lead. So it's a misconception and we just have to kill it. We have, to shoot, we have to shoot it down. It has no place in this society, and it honestly had no place in a society 50 years ago. So I don't know where that is coming from. And then second is that women can't lead. I have had someone say to me, even the Bible says so. Someone said to me, uh, you know, one of the reasons why uh, we are in such a, uh, we have such a challenged world is because women are in leadership roles where they are not supposed to be. And I think that is completely wrong uh, because we can go back and find all the women that led revolutions, all the women that led empires, and they did much better than some men. And that's not to say that we all cannot lead, but it's to say that we actually also have our rightful place in leadership and our rightful place in history. And if someone just opened a book, they would find that uh, actually we are in our rightful places. So that's the second one, that uh, women can't lead. And then the other one is uh, really, uh, that bothers me is uh, again, it's a new concept uh, that you put yourself before the people. Mm. Mm. 
because going back, I mean, uh, it has already been said, going back, you can uh, read uh, the founders of any country, they were putting the people first. And that is what traditional, traditionally leadership was. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just have to go back to those founding pr principles of leading for the sake of the people, of leading for the upliftment of your communities, of your societies and the countries. And it's not about if your pockets are lined up first before you can ensure there's uh, clean water in another village. So, and again, it takes me back because when people say African leadership is corrupt, I disagree with that wholeheartedly, because it's not a traditional form of leadership. It's something that we're seeing now. And if there's anything that we can go back into uh, maybe 50, 60 years ago, then there are fundamentals that we can learn from, mm -hmm. instead of fundamentals that we say we should let go of. Right. Uh, and uh, it is really remembering what it is, or why it is that you are in that certain place? What is the purpose of your leadership? And it should definitely be servant leadership. So purpose, 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 but most importantly, we might need to go back in order for us to go forward. Yes. Thank you very much for that. I'm going to open up. I see the hands, right? I see all of them all coming up at once. So this is how we're going to do it. I'm going to ask you uh, to, so I'm going to work my way up and then we're going to take several rounds. I'm going to take three questions per round. Um, and I'm going to ask you, please, sharp, short, concise, to the point, so I can get as many voices in as possible. And we'll, we're going to take several rounds. Please, can you indicate to me who you would like to answer your question? Do not ask a question where you'd like the entire panel to reflect on the question. It's going to take time. So choose one person. And if you don't choose, I'll choose one for you. Um, yes. And then we'll move it on from there. All right. So let's take the... Yes, Mama. Can I ask them to... The lights are blinding us. We to can't please introduce see. themselves. We yes, can't see no, people. No, no. We need to see the people we are talking okay. to. So the and lights the lights slightly. really are too blinding for me to see. There we go. All right. And I definitely need to do this. All right. Thank you so much, Mama. So we're going to go. We're we going to go one. Better. I'm going to go on either side. I'm going to go one. I see you. Two. And I'll take you three. Right? Let's take those three and we'll try again. So can I get the microphone here? Can I get another one ready to go for the lady here in the front? And then another one there in the middle. Short, sharp, to the point. And please introduce yourself and where you're from. Okay. Uh, my name is Paul Shalal. I'm a journalist from Zambia. Uh, my question is directed to Professor Tudi. Um, in your job, I know you had all these threats, but did you reach a point where you had to choose between personal, self, uh, personal security or your personal safety and national interest? Especially that your job involved uh, things that were exposing these big guys who are after money. Thank you. Thank you very much. So self-preservation versus national interest. Thank you so much. Let's take the question from you. Thank you. My name is um, Zainab Katimba. I'm a member of parliament in Tanzania. I got voted into office when I was 25. Please, uh, Honorable, Honorable um, Bogolo, could you please share the disruptions that you've had to thrive through to reach where you are so that you can inspire this flow of future, present and future leaders, the Obama leaders? 
Thank you. Thank you very much. So emphasis on disruptions um, that you've had to thrive through. Let's take the question from here. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. My name is Candice Nkot and I'm from Cameroon and I'm here because I want to push women empowerment. Um, uh, Mrs. Grassa Mitchell, I wanted to ask you if you can tell us about the time you saw a woman shift from a mentality where she limited her aspiration to be able to fit in a society that pushed us to become a non-threatening wife mm. to becoming someone with ambition and what advice you will give to community influencers like, like us to help women to, to empower themselves emotionally and economically? Thank you very much. That's a beautiful question, Candice. You guys have done really well with short, short and sharp. So I'm gonna take three more um, and then I'll come back to, to the panel. So let me go to the back. Let's go to the back. Um, yes, with, um, you're nodding. Yes, please. Yes, thank you. I see you too, all right? And then um, we're gonna take the lady here with the striped shirt and let's take a gentleman can we take the gentleman there in the grey jersey? Thank you very much. Please go ahead. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. My name is Emily Miki and I'm from Cameroon. My question is directed to Mama Gracia Michelle. Um, she has experience in promoting education in conflict regions and present in Cameroon for two years. Our children have not been able to go to school for two years in the English speaking regions and there's a lot of killings. So how do you do with situations like that? If she could explain her model properly Mm. Because we have difficulties on the field promoting education when you are risk of being killed. Beautiful question. Looking for a model that, that, that can work. Thank you so much. Yes, please go ahead. Thank you very much. My name is Masio Dongo from Kenya. My question is to Mama Grasa. Mm. How did you manage to marry two presidents from different <laughs> countries and retain your identity that is, you still maintain your leadership with grace and brilliance. Thank you very much. Thank you. Final question, guy in the... Yes, please, sir. Thank you. I see you. Guys, can we settle down so we can hear the question? You guys are not familiar with love. <laughs> Let's go there. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Jeremy Lesuba. Guys, can I please have your attention? Jeremy has a question. Thank you. Hello, my name is uh, Jeremy Lesuba. I'm a member of parliament for the Republic of Congo, in the Republic of Congo. Um, my question, I apologize, but I would like to open this question to two of the panelists specifically. You'll only get one, so go okay, ahead. Okay, that's fine. Um, I think it's an important question though. Uh, many countries on our continent have been torn apart by war. The mm. societies have been torn apart by war. Uh, and much of the work that some of the panelists have done have been to, to repair those, those that break. Mm. My question is, are there some things that you cannot come back from? Mm. And if there are, how do you deal with those? Thank, Thank you, you Jeremy. Thank you. Great. That's, we're going to wrap that round, and then we'll see how we do on time. But fantastic, fantastic questions. Mama, you, Mama Grasha, you've got a lot of questions, so I'll come to you last as you okay. continue to reflect. And maybe, Minister Kenewendo, I'll come to you first. Um, and the question from Zaina was really around, you know, what are the, some of the things that you've, uh, or disruptions, that you've had to thrive, uh, thrive through. Any thoughts on particularly disruption? So the things that are almost inconvenient in the current reality, but that you've had to live through these moments. Hmm. So many, mm. uh, uh, a lot of, a lot of issues. And uh, to start off with, just a lot of no's. Um, mm. As a, a young female, in particular. 
you go through a lot of doors being shut in your face, a lot of no's, and sometimes the doors open, but uh, open with expectation. And uh, that I am very familiar with and uh, have had to uh, learn uh, that a firm no uh, won't close the door for you if it was meant for you. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've, I've had to even, I, have, I run a mentorship program at home. And several years ago, I had young people telling me that, no, but we can't say no because then I'm going to lose the job. Mm -hmm. And I said, if that job is for you, uh, it will come regardless. And if it's not, uh, even if you say yes, you will not uh, find fulfillment in that role. Uh, it, you will be haunted by having said yes. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Sexual harassment uh, exists, and it does not matter what level you are in. Uh, even when I was uh, just uh, joining eConsult as a consultant, you know, I had to, fortunately, I had a great boss who I could bounce off ideas, and I told him, you know, uh, these people, when we went to the meeting, uh, they wanted me to then see them afterwards. Or they asked me if I'm working on top of or under. You know, they were insinuating a lot yeah. of uh, uh, sexual uh, issues. And I had to uh, really put my foot down. There was even a former minister. I put my foot down and I said to him, I did not come here to do you sexual favors. Mm. And... And I remember at the time he asked me, what kind of a Lefortin are you? Baba Tsongkozana understand the Lefortin. What kind of a young girl, that's what they meant. What kind of a young girl are you that you are among us powerful men and you don't want to do sexual favors, uh. right? And I told them, no, I am here on my own right and my own accord, and I know what I'm supposed to be doing here, and it is not the sexual favors. And I can say that from that point, one of them, I built a relationship with him, and he respected the fact that I said no so boldly. Mm -hmm. And I encourage a lot of, uh, I encourage young women to really say it boldly, yes. because if you don't, then people assume that you are accepting. You know, uh, people assume that you're accepting. And then uh, on issues that are more closer to your heart and maybe you're an activist or you want to start your business, you will also get a lot of no's. And I, I'm aware of the time. You'll also get a lot of no's. But my advice is you start. You start with the little bit that you have. Uh, when I uh, started the organization, we had nothing. And I used to say, once we start, people will catch up. Yeah. They will see the good work that you're doing, and they will catch up. And trust me, they have caught up and in folds, you know? And in folds, and it's one of the reasons why I'm a minister now, because I was not afraid to just keep going yeah. through all the challenges and through all the scarcity that I spoke uh, yeah. of earlier. So, and then the last one, uh, Nozipo, was uh, 
when I became an MP and I was at the Pan-African Parliament and I spoke very boldly against uh, the report that was being given by the President of the Parliament at the time. And someone came to me and said, do you know what happens to leaders that are ahead of that time? Sure. You know, uh, when, uh, when you look at history, she said it was a she, she said to me, when you look at history uh, and uh, review all the bold leaders, those who spoke boldly against uh, injustices, they disappeared. And I felt that that was a threat. Yeah. It was. <laughs> I felt that was a threat. So I said to her, I asked her, are you threatening me? Because we need to be clear so I can also bring out my boxing gloves if necessary. And you will get threats as a young leader. You will yeah. get a lot of threats that you are misplaced, you're not, this is not your space, you need to keep quiet, but you shouldn't if you feel passionately about and about uh, what you're speaking on. Mm -hmm. And I, am, I remain very resolute in the things that I joined the parliament, uh, thinking I stand for, and I know that those are, they are the ones that keep me deeply rooted mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. who I am and to my people, and I will not change regardless of the threats. Mm. Wow. So, so, Minister, two things as I link uh, the final comment to Prof. Madonsela. Um, I think there's, a, there's an unspoken challenge in the room to say, as you talk about saying no, what are the young men in this room taking responsibility for to ensure that those things are not happening under their watch? Exactly. Right? So that is the one thing. But then to maybe link you know, this veiled threat to the question, uh, one of the questions that was raised for Prof. Matoncella of personal safety or self-preservation versus national interest. interest. How do you make that call? Thank you. It, at the end, to the colleague from Zambia, I didn't get the first name. What's the name, sir? Paul. Paul. It was a challenge to balance the two, but I could never make a choice between um, the call of my office and, and my family, because of course my family always came first. My daughter here, um, uh, Wenzile, is, is part of that. I had, of course, to negotiate space, though, in a way that makes sure that I do not necessarily put my family in a position of um, risk. I, I tried not to incur unnecessary risks. And part of uh, trying not to incur un unnecessary risks is the power of um, communication. You asked if I didn't end up with enemies. I never viewed anybody as my enemy. They may have viewed themselves as my enemy. But for me, I always reached out to anybody who had said something negative, uh, if it was said that people were trying to kill me, if I didn't reach out to them, my brother reached out to some of them. Mm. And uh, we designed a program as the Power Protector where we met with the public. At the end of that stakeholder consultations, we met with political parties, all of them. Mm. And the last group that we met with was the governing party would raise all of these issues around this is happening, there are suspicions that some of your people are trying to kill me, and, um, and they would say no. And 
in the end, the public, the public became the protectors of the power protector. Mm. And for me, as a power protector, there was also one thing also that I learned was um, we, we started as wanting to protect the public. And I remember saying I would be, uh, the power protector would be the tree under which people would come in. One of the things I learned, you said something about uh, some of the beliefs that as you grow in a leadership role, you end up discarding. One of the things that I discarded which really worked in my favor in terms of safety, was I discarded the idea that I was going to protect the public. The team and I found ourselves in the space where we found that actually the people have their own voices. They know the difference between right and wrong. They know the difference between just and unjust. Our role was to open dialogue between the people and government. Yeah. Because what happens is people know what's wrong, but when they try to talk to people in government, the gates are not open, or they're not being treated with respect, or they don't even know who to speak to. But the moment we opened those gates through events like this, and we brought government, people became part of the pop protector family. And so they knew exactly what was happening. We never had to explain to them. When they were saying, for example, as far as we're protecting foreign interests, people knew because they'd been part of events like this mm -hmm. to discuss how we work. They, they had seen how we, could, we, we, we provided an avenue for them to engage government, to hold government uh, accountable, which the World Bank refers to as public accountability. So the lesson there is, Try never to crusade alone. Mm -hmm. Make sure that the very same people you serve become your peers. Because often when we're in public office, we see the people as the people we save, but they're out there. Mm -hmm. And we, whereas they can be our equals, they are our yeah. equals, they know what to do. And, 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 and in the end, they protected us. I wanted to just say something very quickly on the one that Jeremy said yes. um, there are things uh, in a war situation that you can't come back from. And I think, Jeremy, that's a very important thing for you as the emerging leaders of our continent. I do believe that there are things that maybe we can come back from, but it might take centuries to come back from. For example, resources. Resources are not infinite, they're finite. And during war, resources get stolen. If you have oil, it gets stolen to fund the, the war. Gold, if you have gold, it gets stolen to fund the war. You're never gonna get it back. The environment gets degraded. You're never gonna get the environment back on time. So those are things I think we may never come back from. But there are things, Jeremy, that we can come back from, but it's gonna be difficult. Mm. One of those things is poisoned relationships. Poisoned relationships. Poisoned relationships. Corrupt leaders divide and rule. In, in Africa, when I was a student, we were studying how corrupt leaders would use ethnicity mm -hmm. to divide and rule. 
They would use religion to divide and rule. And then you start seeing each other like that. Look what happened in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. People killed each other. It takes time to start seeing each other as humans again. Yeah. It takes time to embrace the humanity of each other. So don't go there. In South Africa, last year, when we were busy investigating an investigation called state capture, which we should be aware of as leaders because things may be given to you as Trojan horses. Yeah. You know the virus called Trojan horse? It's given to you as a gift. Then it starts messing up your system. So state captures like that. Somebody's gonna find you, somebody's gonna put you in a high position, then they're just going to control you. Mm -hmm. But in the end, they destroy everything that's good. Yeah. But talking about that, is in, when we started the investigation in March last year, they unleashed a campaign to divide and rule. It was meant to be a dead cat. You know, the, the dead cat strategy where you throw a dead, a, a dead cat for, anybody, for everybody to forget what they were dealing with and then focus on the yeah. dead cat. That's what they did. So everyone then focused on the dead cat. The dead cat was, there's no problem in South Africa. The real problem is white monopoly capital. And in all of your countries, you do have problems of monopoly capital. But monopoly capital is a problem regardless of its color. But it's not the only problem you have. You can't say there's no corruption. You can't say there's no corporate greed that is not related to monopoly capital. So they started, but that court, because of social injustice, mm. because people are hungry. Yeah. And sociologists say, when people are hungry, they become angry. Yeah. In Zulu we say, like hunger causes anger. Yeah. Then sociologists say, a lot of our people, where we come from in this continent, are hangry. <laughs> which is hungry and angry. But if then you are hungry and angry and somebody says the reason you are hungry, it's no zippo. Uh. You're not going to overanalyze that. Yeah. And if you see she's dressed well as she's dressed so well now, <laughs> and you say, you hungry, I've stolen the money. I've yeah. stolen the money through corruption, but I am saying I'm working for you. The reason you, you have no food is... She is the culprit. Mm. You're gonna go for her. So that's what, what mm. happened in my country during the campaign on white monopoly capital. Mm. But even okay. today, mm. the relations mm. between black and white are poisoned. Our relations were always poisoned under yeah. apartheid. So we were in the process of healing the divisions of the past, as many nations are. But if somebody's healing a wound and then somebody throws salt on it, yeah the healing process is undermined. Yeah. So I'm just saying, be careful mm -hmm. when, for example, some of you are gonna go into politics, the strategy that says divide, divide and rule, mm. or encourage people to be unlawful and be destructive, it's just gonna come back and mm. haunt us in the future. Thank mm -hmm. you very much, Prof. Um, yes. The leadership lessons are coming through thick and fast. Dead cats and Trojan horses mm. have to be part of our, our, of our language because it's part of the reality that leaders have to navigate. I'm coming to you, Mama, now, and I know that there are quite a number of 
um, of questions. There was a beautiful question from Candice from Cameroon who spoke about um, how do you deal with partners that want to limit your aspirations um, and how do you then position yourself as a non-threatening uh, non wife or non-threatening partner, which is closely related to Marcio's question around how do you retain your identity if you're a partner or a wife to somebody who is a leader at that level and of that caliber. Um, and I do want us very much to address Emily's question because it's, it's such a beautiful direct question around you, what, is, what works of the model when we look at rebuilding entire nations and societies? Because her reality is, I come from a country where for the last two years, uh, children have not been going to school. What can I take from your model that I can maybe tweak but implement in my own context? And I know you've been taking quite a number of notes <laughs> as Prof and Minister were speaking, mm -hmm. so I'm gonna give you an opportunity to, to work your way through some of these issues. I will try. I think it's, uh, it's, it's not so easy. Let me be very quick on the issue of children who are not going to school uh, in situations of conflict. My suggestion to you in Cameroon is please ask UNICEF. Do you have uh, an office of UNICEF in every country. Just ask them to take the responsibility of help because they represent the UN family. That's why I'm saying it's a responsibility. That's why they are there. To help the country to redesign the circumstances in which regardless of conflict which has to be solved politically, the children don't pay the price because they are missing education. They can find a way. And uh, uh, if, if you find it extremely difficult to, to do that, I, I can also, if you like, I can suggest people who can help you to do that. Because it's a tricky issue. Yeah. We don't know how long the conflict is going to continue, and you don't want the children to miss out because of that. So there are alternatives, or while you are solving the political issue, children are really supported to continue to, to, with their education. The, the, the biggest question which was asked here is this issue of uh, uh, your own identity and how you're related to the kind of partners you have. I would like you to take uh, some of the examples which the minister was talking about sexual harassment and how she has, uh, because it is related. The first thing is that as a young woman, you have really to define the boundaries of what you are to accept and what you are not to accept. And that will define also the way you choose your partner. Because it comes to that. It's not like you discover that your partner is abusive only. If, if you are very clear, you will know and you will sense who is the right per person to partner with in life. And I think that has been the most difficult issue for young women. Because in one sense, they don't want to be too assertive as she is, because they will be, they will be threatening, and they try to compromise. And then at the same time, they want really to affirm and assert themselves with someone they didn't have the care and the courage then to say, mm -mm, he's not the right one, before they go very deep into the relationship. So they are caught up in this. I know it's not an easy issue, but I'm saying it comes always to 
the type of a partner you are going to choose to share your life with. And now I'll come to the question which was asked, how did, did I manage to, to marry two presidents? I didn't, no, 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 honestly, I didn't marry any president. No, 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 not at all. There's a huge confusion there. I married, I married two extraordinary human beings in different times in history, you know? I married Samora Michelle at the age of, of 30, okay? And I married Madiba was 53. So there was a huge difference between the two experiences in life. They were all, I mean, they were both, I mean, my English now. But they were both very different as human beings. And there was one fundamental quality which attracted me to, to them. They would respect me. It's just to respect me. And to accept me, to accept me knowing, knowing that I'm not a perfect person. And that was also the condition for me to accept them. I knew they were not perfect people. And we, we just have to, to be able to accept one another and respect. It's absolutely fundamental. Now, let me give you <laughs> a response which Madiba one day. There was a, a journalist who tried to embarrass him to say, uh, Mr. President, how, do you, how can you accept that you, your wife uh, is, is Mozambican? She didn't change to become South African because she, ma she married you. So she is Mozambican. And even worse, she is Michelle. She keeps the name of her first husband. She doesn't take, she doesn't take your name as Mandel. How can you live with this? And he made himself even more comfortable. <laughs> I was there. And he said, you know, I'm so grateful to her because she allows me to continue to be Nelson Mandela and she allows me to continue to be South African. <laughs> you hear? And it was brilliant and it killed it all. And that is, that is, that is when a human being is absolutely self confident with himself that he, he doesn't feel threatened to say why my wife now is not taking my name and why you see what I mean so I know it's not easy but please take the time to choose the kind of partner you want to share your life with and if you love him so madly but you understand that he has certain issues put your issues at the table before you go too deep. Let him know exactly what are your boundaries. What is she saying? The nose. He has to know that there are A, B, C, D things he, should ex he shouldn't expect you to be or to do. Huh? To be or to do. And when these, 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 these rules are very clear, he also is going to tell you, because there are no two human beings who will be absolutely matching in everything. The relationship between two, it is really this acceptance in which you know, he has weaknesses, she has weaknesses, but we meet each other, we respect each other, and actually we are prepared to grow together and changing together during the relationship. So you are talking to an old woman here. An old woman who had had these experiences, so it sounds easy, but I know 
that it's not easy. And at the time of my first marriage, it was much difficult, actually, to put these rules and to implement them than when I married Madiba. Because we were already very mature when I married Madiba. We were very mature. So, I mean, we, well, I don't want to describe more. It's just to say we were, we were, we were, we were mature. But when you are young, you are young, that kind of negotiations is much, it's much harder. Let me also tell you something. I was Minister of Education in a cabinet where my husband was the president. So it was very complicated. And we had to establish these rules very clear. Even in cabinet, there was a time I remember very well. He was going too far in terms of the way he was trying, I mean, to instruct me as Minister of Education and my team to do things which I knew he was not very well informed and we could make a wrong decision. So what I did is to say, Mr. President, I'm really sorry. Can I ask you to freeze this discussion? I would like to have a much more deep analysis of this with your excellency, with my team, and then the cabinet can come back to discuss this. And then when we went home, now I can tell you. I had to say, yeah, that is true. That is true. We went home and I had to tell him, you know what? You are the president, I am the minister. And they are decisions which if are made wrong during the time I am minister, I'm going to bear the responsibility. It's not going to be the, the president. So that's the reason why I said, please receive me with my team to explain with your advisors so that we'll go back while you are fully briefed about the decision we're going to make. What does it mean? I was young, yes, but I had been brought up in a way, my family, really, and I think this is very important. My family had educated me to be very firm when I'm convinced, okay? When you are convinced of something, stand to your position until someone proves you that you are wrong. Before that, stand to it. And it's, it helps. So when you are confronted with a difficult situation, we have to say, what it is, which is my value system and my conviction are telling me, and then you are going to negotiate whoever is the boss you have. And then whoever also is the pattern you have. So it's a question also of how we build our own personalities. And in my case, I was really very lucky. I was, I was in a family which helped me to, to have a very strong kind of, yeah, I have to so, stop so, there. So we have, mm. a, so we have a, a light here that says that we've got less than five minutes left, right? And I still want, I still want our panelists just to give us our parting thoughts. So if I don't take that gentleman's question, mm -hmm. I, I worry about my own safety, right? <laughs> because he has been jumping up and down. So we'll take a quick one from you and the gentleman on the far end, you've been asking so much. And then, and then can we have a, a lady that, there? Perfect. So, literally a sentence, please, go ahead. Thank you very much. My, my name is Mark. I'm the youngest commissioner in Nigeria. Uh, I, I made it at 20, well, 28, but was confirmed at 30. Um, uh, my question is to you, uh, Honorable. Uh, you've done great work. Um, but to drive change, to drive reform um, at our level, it's, it's not just one person. I want to know how you in your position with your platform, how are you creating opportunities for young women, men, people in our generation to also get into government? 
Because Mark, without... thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Great question. Let's go to that side. Thank you. Th thank, thank you. you. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you. Yes. My name is Joshua Nasari, and I'm currently serving my second term as an MP in the Parliament of Tanzania. My quick question to um, our minister from Botswana. Uh, what do you think that some of us have been lucky enough to get into this position at this age? What do you think we have to do so that we can have more young leaders into these positions in the future? Thank you very much, uh, Joshua. Final question. Yes, madam, go ahead. Uh, my name is Tilly from South Africa. I'm a scientist and social entrepreneur. Uh, my question is to Prof Tuli. Um, do you think there'll come a time where we don't need political affiliation to become members of parliament and people in governance? And if yes, how? Thank you, Tuli. All right, so please forgive me. I really want to take all the questions, but I will get thrown out. So I'm going to go to Minister first, and I think this works beautifully. Our timer says we've got three minutes left. So, Minister, I'm going to ask you to, as you respond to these questions, to almost think of them as your final statement, um, and I'll work my way through. Okay. So, let's start. So, Mark from Nigeria wants question. to know, you know, how do you open opportunities for others? But Josh in Tanzania um, is also a similar question. Yes. How do we enable more young people and get them into the political arena? Yeah. Uh, first, I uh, just want us to get it right that uh, leadership isn't just in government and that when we create spaces for young people in leadership, it should be across the spectrum. It shouldn't just be focusing on the political side because if we are all concentrated in the political side, then you know we are missing the balance. And uh, uh, what we are currently doing at home um, in the leadership spaces generally is, uh, well, I have several boards that I'm currently filling and I can assure you that I'm busy looking at uh, young people's CVs um, to add a bit more life, but to also give opportunity uh, to the experienced young people. And then we have, a, a, I have a kitchen cabinet uh, that um, the majority of them are young people. And uh, it's not just for the purpose of myself as a minister, but as contributing to the work of the ministry and ensuring that, you know, I am not getting lost in my own thoughts and thinking that everything, that I have a monopoly of good ideas. And it's important for me to ensure that I become as inclusive as I want my work to be. Uh, so, and also, uh, lastly, uh, I do a lot of uh, road trips around the country uh, and trying to ensure that the decisions are inclusive, but also that the dissemination of information is inclusive. We are rerouting in the ministry, we're taking stock and looking at uh, the footprint of the ministry and trying to change the offices so that they become more inclusive uh, geographically. So in conclusion, uh, my last words um, is that we are the now leaders. Uh, we are the now leaders, you may be doubting it, uh, but I can assure you that this second wave of uh, independence of the African revolution cannot happen without young minds. It cannot happen without young determination. And I 
ask you to be patient with yourselves, uh, with uh, whatever challenges it is that you may be going through. It is important for us as leaders to be patient uh, with ourselves, with our processes, and to be patient in communication, as uh, the prop has uh, adequately said, because it is in that patience that you keep reminding yourself of the purpose. And work with purpose is less stressful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Prof, the question from Tuli, is there a future where we might see young people not needing political affiliation to be, to be able to lead in the political space? Certainly. Thank you for that question, Tuli, um, because it allows me to talk a little bit about the Tuma Foundation, or full title Tuli Madonsela Foundation. But firstly, right now, Anybody can lead at local government level without a title in South Africa. Um, because in local government, we have a two-pronged uh, approach to public office. You can come in as a ward councillor, or you can come in through proportional representation, a, a group of names that would be submitted by your party. By your party. On the proportional representation, you must have a party. On the constituency, anybody in South Africa can stand for elections. Um, and I'm glad that a scientist uh, is considering uh, the possibility of public office because uh, we, we often have left politics to older people and, and people who probably don't have an opportunity to have jobs elsewhere. Whereas if you look at... <laughs> Whereas, if you look at the pioneer politicians that were, men, were mentioned by the minister, the Krumers, we had the cream of the countries that went into politics, and we want you, the cream of the country, to, uh, to go into politics again. Uh, so, in local government, encourage anybody to go. In terms of where do you get your funding, because it costs money, you can do crowdfunding. And, and some young lady just got a post, it got, just got elected in New York. Well, this is not this country, but a 26-year-old just got uh, elected to represent the, demo, the, the Democrats in, um, in, in the elections in, in New York. So that's going to be possible. But going to the future, truly, you've asked a wonderful question, because I always say, one of the mistakes we're making in Africa is we're leaving philosophy to the Amica Cabrals, uh, to the Fanons, and then to the, uh, to the global philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, etc. What has happened to our new philosophers? We have the power to come back to the political space and say, for democracy to work, in our new environment, which is volatile, uncertain, complex, and relatively ambiguous, we need to refine democracy so that it can meet the requirements of our time. And one of those refinements is, is a political party the only way to public office? It was not always through political parties. 
Some philosopher thought it was a good idea, and you have the power to, to, to give us ideas. The TUMA Foundation is a democracy, leadership, and literacy organization, and one of the things it does is to provide a, a platform for democracy dialogues and for democracy research, and we're inviting young people in particular, but women as well, and, and other people who are not in the mainstream, who are not fully represented in the mainstream, to come and work with us to, to look at democratic alternatives, but just lastly, uh, to reinforce the, what you said is, we don't all have to lead inside government to change the course of history yeah. in terms of our continent. We can begin the leadership we have in civil society and then interface with government to help government to, to govern properly. In, again, at the Tuma Foundation, we have a program called an EPIC Leadership Program. Well, our focus in terms of training is not people who are already in government, it's those outside, so that they can engage meaningfully with government instead of banning things, engage meaningfully, and hopefully then enter government and become the leaders we've been waiting for. EPIC stands for ethical leaders, those who do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, purpose-driven, those who are focusing on the vision of what kind of society are you trying to create, impact-conscious, Remember, everything you say or do has implications for how people are going to act and then committed to serve. So that's epic leadership. And another project you could be involved with is from Stellenbosch University. It's called an M Plan for Social Justice. Because we believe we can talk so much about politics. We can create opportunities in government, uh, opportunities in entrepreneurship for young people. But as long as a lot of our people are left behind. Democracy is under threat in our continent. And the M plan for social justice is about leveraging community resources and helping government also with policies to create a movement for social justice to make sure that by 2030, nobody is poor and that structural inequality has been ended. It's a South African thing, but when I spoke to the African Leadership University MBA students in Rwanda recently, one student from Zimbabwe said he would like to implement an M plan for social justice in Zimbabwe as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Prof. Thank you very much, Prof. Now, as a way of closing, Mama, Prof, Minister, as you can see, the cameras around the room, there's media in the room, and at the end of this conversation, they're going to be looking for a headline that they're going to use to capture this conversation. So I'd like a headline to help my fellow colleagues in the room. Um, not an editorial, not an executive summary, not a front page story. What is the headline? that they must take away from this conversation. Just the headline, right? And Mama, I'm gonna let you go last, because I think Minister might have a bit of an advantage, so I wanna limit her time, um, so that you have more time to think about it, right? Minister, your headline. I actually think that you are the right person for that headline. <laughs> Don't you agree that she should give us the headline? Moderator superpowers, right? Moderator superpowers allows moderators to instruct ministers, which never happens, <laughs> right? So, so as we wait, minister, 
Your headline. <laughs> oh my God. Um, you know, one of the challenges is being given the other side of the mind and not of the brain. Uh, the creativity one doesn't really exist. Uh, <laughs> um, I think, I think young leaders are not the futures of tomorrow, but they are the now leaders. Um, that's the headline, Minister, it can't be an editorial. I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking, and it can't be an you put me on the spot, or maybe uh, that young leaders, uh, these leaders, are the rightful leaders for the second um, wave of independence. So we have two newspapers yes. running uh, this weekend, right? Um, and that's fine, so the first headline, young leaders are not the future leaders, they are the now leaders, right? Mm. The second newspaper headline running this weekend is the right leaders for the second independence. The young leaders, yeah, for the second the, the, uh, the, the economic the right independence. Young leaders yeah. for the second independence. Prof, oh. this is a headline that's making its way all the way across the continent. Right. It's online publication. What is your headline? You are, well, my headline would be that you don't need a title to lead. And secondly, don't go it alone. The Ethiopians say, when spider webs combine, they can even tie up a lion. Wow. Oh, and the lion you must tie up is poverty and corruption. Thank you. Headline number three, you don't need a title to lead. Headline number four, don't go it alone. Then you have a semicolon. When spider webs combine, they can even tie up a lion. Final headline. Final headline. Then we're done. I must say I'm not good at headlines. <laughs> and actually, I'm always very shy when it comes to media because I'm very, very shy. profound transformation of the continent will be achieved when young leaders, networks, work together to build the wave of transformation. It has to be a wave. Now, it's not a headline. I, I have to explain this. It's because individually, as she said, you can't. And as a continent, you need really to connect and move as waves of transformation. Otherwise, we'll be here in the next 50 years. Yeah. So there you have it. Young leaders are not future leaders. They're the now leaders. You are the right leaders for the second independence of this continent. None of you need a title to lead. Don't go it alone. When spider webs connect, they can, they can tie together entire lines. And finally, a profound transformation of the continent will be achieved when leaders and their networks work together. Thank you for having us.